The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading down into the murky bayous of New Orleans, where Catherine Caldwell, a young southern girl obsessed with thoughts of eternal life, awaits the arrival of the mysterious Count Alucard. After Catherine's father is found dead due to an apparent heart failure, Catherine inherits his estate and quickly marries Alucard. It's not long before their unholy union opens up a Pandora's box of terror and death and only the local doctor and a Hungarian professor can stop it. Grab a steak and some garlic and join us as we discuss Son of Dracula. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! <laughs> You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He could his face. <laughs> Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spectacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about the third entry in Universal's Dracula saga, Son of Dracula. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my fantastic co-host monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Hey everybody, it's Michael Morbius. No, just kidding. It's not the <laughs> Mike Manzi. How's it going? Excited to talk about a spawn of Dracula tonight. <laughs> yeah, so Mike, after our quick detour into the Technicolor world of Phantom of the Opera, we're back on our bullshit, as they say, with the cheap monster flicks we know and love. Uh, but this time, we've got Lon Chaney Jr. playing his fourth monster. Now, at this point, Lon Chaney Jr. had become Universal's go-to monster man, whether the role suited him or not. He's played the Wolfman, the Frankenstein monster, the mummy, and now Dracula. Just like with the mummy's tomb, Universal is continuing to save money by transporting their monster from an exotic location to a small American town. There's a lot to like in Son of Dracula, I think, which is often considered one of the more underrated Universal monster flicks of the 1940s. However, what most people seem to agree on is that Lon Chaney Jr. was criminally miscast in the role of Count Alucard. Now, I think I mentioned in our last episode that despite being a very talented actor, Lon just kind of lacks that sexiness required to play a character like the Phantom of the Opera, or in this case, Dracula. Now, what's your history with Son of Dracula, Mike? And, and do you agree with that general consensus about Lon's performance as the iconic vampire? Right, so this is my first screening of Son of Dracula, believe it or not. I, I knew of Alucard from some other references. I think uh, Monster Squad and Castlevania 3, you get to play as right. him. And I was aware Dracula had a son, had offspring. You know, we talked about Dracula's daughter. I wasn't shocked, but like I was, I was very surprised by this movie. I'll just put it that way. Like we are definitely trying to get back to basics after the phantom in color we got an 80 minute runtime which seems still a little like unusual for this stuff but most of all man i'm just like confused like, <laughs> we'll get into a lot of it but this movie is very weird i appreciate how it tries to 
follow the formula, but I think at this point, maybe the formula might be running a little tired or they're just not really a applying it correctly. Like, I agree there's some good stuff here. Like, the bones, the bones of Dracula <laughs> are good. There's cool, like, ideas going on here. But again, I feel like the execution just doesn't perform for me entirely. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean that there aren't things I don't enjoy about it. As for Dracula himself, or as for Alucard, as for Lon Chaney Jr., I don't hate him. Uh, I don't love him, but I don't hate him. Like, I, I feel like he's super close to working. It all works for me until he starts talking. And then I'm just bummed he's not really attempting an accent or, or something extra with his voice. But I appreciate the mustache. I like that addition to Dracula. I like his very imposing stature. That works very well for a Dracula. It was cool that Bella was sort of a leaner, unimposing guy, but I very much like that in this one, Dracula can just like pick you up by the throat and toss you, you know, through a wall or something. He's got some cool mannerisms, but again, like the voice, you know, I need a voice. <laughs> yeah, so those are kind of my initial thoughts going into this episode. I think this one's interesting in that, like for me, it sort of plays like sort of like a perverse spin on the original Dracula formula in that, you know, we've got weird parallels, but they've they've sort of taken the, the sort of general ideas of certain things and gone a different way with them. For example, I look at Frank as this movie's Renfield. And it, yeah, it's sort of like if Renfield were the main character of Dracula, right? So, so maybe Universal's new Renfield movie might take some inspiration from this. Who knows? You've got sort of this movie's Renfield as a perspective, like a point of view character. You've got Amina, who is kind of like a vampire herself in a figurative sense, you know, in the first half, in that she is manipulative. She's kind of the Dracula in this movie, if, if you can understand what I mean by that, you know? And then you've got Dracula, of course who's basically Dracula, but then you've got Dr. Brewster, who is kind of like the Dr. Seward of Dracula. However, here he plays a much bigger role. He's kind of a point of view character. When I'm trying to think of the, the main characters of this movie, I waffle between Dr. Brewster and, and Frank. And then we've got like a Van Helsing who doesn't play quite so big a role as Van Helsing did in the original Dracula. I feel like we have the bits and pieces that made up the 1931 Dracula film, but they've been twisted and sort of repackaged in a, in a new way. And so I like seeing those things in this movie. It does run a little too long. They're explaining things that are sort of already well established in Dracula lore. I think if they shaved like 10 minutes off of this movie, it would be uh, a lot cleaner and, and more fun to watch. As for Lon Chaney Jr., I do kind of agree with the general consensus. You know, I think he does cut a hard figure. You know, when you look at him, he's huge. The mustache does look good. And I do love that he's a big guy for the scenes where this Dracula has to be physical, you know? Like, I don't doubt for a second that he could put a man through a wall. Whereas with Bela Lugosi, I would probably question his ability to do that. So all of that works, but you're right. I think maybe what it comes down to is the voice. He doesn't really attempt an accent. He doesn't really do anything to change his voice. So all I really see is Larry Talbot in a Dracula costume. Maybe it was outside of his range. I have a little bit of difficulty imagining that he couldn't play this character, but for whatever reason, the performance he gives here just doesn't sell Dracula to me in the way that, that satisfies me, I guess. It's interesting the way that you're 
brought up the parallels to the original or sort of the reversal or, or what they're trying to build off of that, it didn't really occur to me, but I like that line of thinking, you know, the idea that Catherine is sort of this willing Mina and <laughs> knows what's going on. And Dracula, you know, would be better if he was in it more and if it was more about him, but he's sort of a mark in this movie. And maybe that's part of what I didn't quite enjoy about it. It's like, I didn't feel like anyone could get over on Count Dracula like that, but Catherine has like this incredible plan that she's able to keep, you know, I guess her mind locked off from anybody trying to find out what she's up to. I love Van Helsing so much. I wish they didn't split his character in two. Like we got Brewster and Laszlo here, but like we could have just had one or the other. It's so bizarre how to me, Dr. Brewster becomes the protagonist of this movie. It's not that I mind that, but like, I just wish that was sort of set up a little better. I wish that like Claire didn't really disappear. I just have trouble with a lot of the setup. Like I didn't even catch that Claire and Catherine were sisters right off the bat. I didn't know we were in New Orleans. I still don't know how Catherine met Alucard, why she brought the poor gypsy woman back with her. Like there's so many weird things going on. You mentioned that like maybe it could be 10 minutes shorter. I think they cut 20 minutes out of this, you know, honestly. Yeah. Parts to me feel a little incoherent. One point Brewster's going to come in and be like, oh, by the way, Dr. Laszlo's on his way. I'm like, he is? We talked to him like 30 minutes ago, but it seemed like that he was out of the movie. And then he comes in for the back half and like is running around trying to hunt Dracula. Again, I don't really mind this kind of stuff. It's just like the movie keeps catching me off guard in moments where I was like, well, if this was set up, it would pay off so much better. Yeah. Personally, I don't mind being dropped into a story kind of in progress, right? Like you mentioned, things that just were sort of left out and weren't really explained. So like, I I totally feel that. I agree with you in that splitting one character into Dr. Brewster and Professor Laszlo might have been a bad idea. I, I suspect that the reason they did that was so that they could have those moments where Professor Laszlo explains vampire science for maybe the people who forgot from the previous Dracula movies. And so if there's anything that's superfluous in here, at least today, in 2022, where we've seen a zillion vampire movies, those are the moments that we don't need. So if we're going to keep this movie at an hour and 20 minutes, then I would say get rid of those scenes and maybe expand on some of Catherine's backstory. And like, obviously she took a trip to Europe and she is now bringing a bunch of things back with her and maybe we get a little more clarity there i don't know that splitting you know van helsing into these two characters dr brewster and, and professor laszlo was necessarily a good idea it had been some time since the original dracula film so maybe universal also wanted to refresh everybody's memory as to what the rules of a vampire movie are that's possible too and i'm okay with that and we sort of shift them around or we we find out ones that are more sort of important than others like i don't really think they talk about garlic very much but the crucifix is is very important in this one the stake to the heart clearly and like i don't really mind that as much when i started to bother me is that even if this isn't what happens it feels what's happening is that scene by scene we're sort of getting very little progression as far as like events and stuff and it seems like people are telling each other what they're finding out in the previous scene or yeah yeah (laughs) and we're getting like these long talks about what we've just saw and we talk about like show don't tell and we're getting like doubling down on the tell in this movie it it feels like that and it feels like we're sort of just like taking one step forward and two steps back for the whole thing yeah i mean if you consider that by this time these movies were made for kids that would make more sense as to why they took that approach it's easy to lose perspective on that when watching these movies a hundred years later but i feel like if i'm an adult starting to get bored going where's count mustache where is he where's he where's that guy where's the bat where's that giant bat 
I'm sure a kid is just like nodding off during half of this, especially when like your main character is like a 65 year old pediatrician running around <laughs> trying to kill Dracula. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have a whole lot else to say. I think pretty much agree with everything you've been saying. I think I maybe enjoy the movie a little more than you do, but I definitely agree that there's plenty of flaws here. So let's get into the backstory here. There wasn't a ton of information, but definitely some stuff worth digging into. So by this point, it had been about 12 years since Todd Browning's Dracula, which appeared on screens in 1931. And this is only Universal's third Dracula film, as I mentioned before. Now, after Todd Browning's film, it only took about three weeks for Universal to begin thinking about a sequel. And the titles that were floated at the time were Modern Dracula, The Return of Dracula, and The Son of Dracula. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find any more information on what these films would have become. I just know the titles were, were sort of mentioned and, and were, were sort of public knowledge at the time. But for whatever reason, Universal released Dracula's Daughter in 1936. And by 1942, the double bills of Dracula and Frankenstein were still proving to be very popular with audiences. So Universal knew that they could probably milk some more out of Dracula. So by 1943, we get Son of Dracula. On June 5th, 1942, the Daily Variety announced two new horror films starring Lon Chaney Jr., Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman and Son of Dracula. Now, George Wagner was originally supposed to produce Son of Dracula, but he was unable due to the fact that he was tied up with Phantom of the Opera. He was replaced with Ford Beebe, who earned the job on the strength of his 1942 film Night Monster, starring Bela Lugosi and Lionel Atwill. Prior to this, Beebe was most well-known for his work directing serials, including Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, and The Green Hornet. In May 1942, Universal commissioned good old Kurt Siodmak to write the script. Coincidentally, Universal also hired Kurt's brother, Robert Siodmak, to direct. Prior to arriving in the United States, Robert Siodmak was already an established filmmaker, having worked as an actor, writer, editor, and assistant director, even working with the likes of Edgar G. Ulmer, Billy Wilder, and Fred Zinnemann on the groundbreaking 1929 documentary, Mention Am Sontag. Later, Siodmak joined Germany's Ufa Studios and made a name for himself with the 1931 film The Tempest before fleeing to France and eventually to the U.S. as the Nazis began to invade Europe. Unfortunately, his long list of credentials meant pretty much nothing to anybody in Hollywood. And like Joe May, who directed The Invisible Man Returns, also a German immigrant, he had to start from scratch to rebuild himself with various B-level material at Paramount, Republic, and 20th Century Fox. According to his brother Kurt, quote, They forced him to do this shot and that shot. Robert didn't want to do it. One day an assistant said to him, I thought you were such a big director. Why don't you fight to do it your way? Robert said, because this is Paramount shit. This is not a Siodmak picture. So they fired him. He would eventually go on to be a very successful director at Universal with a string of noir thrillers in the mid-40s, but Son of Dracula was Siodmak's first film at the studio. Keen to make a strong impression, he had his brother thrown off the film, and this would be the last film the two would make together. I'm aware of some of his later work, which is why when his name came up in the title, maybe I got a little more excited. I didn't expect him to not have his studio chops yet, I guess. I don't know how else to say it, but you know, I guess you gotta play ball for a while before you really get to step out and do your thing. But I've seen some of his other films. I've seen The Suspect, I know The Killers, mm -hmm. Spiral Staircase, like he's, I think he's considered a really big noir director. Yeah, I just was not expecting him to show up on Son of Dracula, I guess. And again, I think I guess that's why I, I guess I expected more from the movie. I will say that given our knowledge of him as a noir filmmaker uh, in the years to come beyond Son of Dracula, I can see his mark on this movie, maybe not so much with all of this dialogue and sort of the pacing and everything, but definitely in the visual style. He was a 
the, a good choice to direct this for that by itself. This movie does look really nice. There's an element of this movie now that we're bringing up noir and stuff that Catherine, she's sort of like a grifter. Like she's got like this whole plan that she's like orchestrated, you know, and she's going to trick Dracula. And they try to do a bunch of like twists and turns and reveals and double crosses and stuff. And I feel like those are elements that will come into play in like his later movies. Yeah, I actually hadn't thought about this as having sort of a noir structure to it. But you're you're right about that. It's a horror film with supernatural elements. But the, the bones of a noir are here. Like, I think I'm agreeing with you in that I don't think it was executed as well as it could have been. But, like, imagine a Dracula film noir. Like, that, I want to see that movie. This one tries to do it. It kind of, like, wants to do it under the surface, but it doesn't really get there, unfortunately. Just not enough Dracula. Like, he's got to be the guy pulling off the scheme. Yes. <laughs> That's the deal. Yeah. <laughs> So I said this was the last time Robert and Kurt Siodmak worked together. I do have a quote from Kurt. He said, quote, We had a sibling rivalry. When we were in Germany, Robert had a magazine, and when I wrote for it, I had to change my name. He only wanted one Siodmak around. This lasted 71 years until he died. Wow. <laughs> I've got brothers I couldn't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to imagine they loved each other on some level, but professionally it, it does not seem that they did. Fortunately, Kurt still does get a story credit here, but the screenplay credit does go to Eric Taylor, who was previously credited for Phantom of the Opera and The Ghost of Frankenstein. Let me just say real quick about Eric Taylor. Looking at his filmography, starting to make a lot more sense too. Like, Guy does a lot of crime stuff, and I think... There was even a series called, like, The Crime Doctor. Yep. So it's kind of cool how he's straddling horror and noir as well um, and bringing, I guess, whatever he can to this picture. And serials, it sounds like. You know, we've got Eric Taylor and we've got Ford Beebe, both guys who sort of cut their teeth on old serials. These guys should work well together to craft a, a story like this, you know, sort of pulpy feature. But I'm, I'm not really entirely sure where the weak link is here. You know, I don't, I can't, I couldn't figure out one person dependent on it because the script is fine, but I feel like somebody should have maybe made some cuts to it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll go through the cast real quick. Uh, we've got Lon Chaney Jr. as Count Alucard. I don't need to get into Lon Chaney Jr. We've kind of established him as a horror icon at this point. But at this time, poor Bella Lugosi was over at Monogram Pictures. He was making B and C level schlock, just waiting for the day that Dracula would return. And according to director Reginald LeBorg, Lugosi was still fuming about being snubbed for this movie when he co-starred with Chaney in The Black Sleep in 1956. I can't even imagine what must have been going through his mind when Universal announced a new Dracula and they decided not to go with him. Especially since he had done such a great job as Igor. Yes. And even a pretty good job as the monster and stuff like he was delivering if you ask me on all kinds of roles and so yeah it's kind of weak that we're gonna have dracula as the main character let's not bring bella back now the only thing that came to mind is that they were trying to do some kind of fake out the entire movie which the movie blows in the first scene, but even the title, Son of Dracula, like, no, there is no Son of Dracula in this movie, you know? And so, like, maybe to cast Alucard, they needed a fresh face or a different face. If sure. they had Bella, then, you know, obviously he's Dracula. That's the only thing I can think of. But as I was thinking of it, I remember watching the movie going, like, they, they kind of give up that whole mystery of Dracula, Alucard, backwards, forwards, like, immediately. So I can't imagine what, what was going on over there. Bella would not really work in this movie as it exists. 
we can look back on it in hindsight like yeah of course it would be weird to have bella as dracula in this movie it's called son of dracula however the powers that be at universal were ready to make another dracula movie you know so during the pre-production stage why not craft a movie for bella's return I don't know that he was upset because he was snubbed for this movie as it exists, but that he was overlooked entirely when the decision was made to revive Dracula. Yeah, that way we could have picked up right from the last movie. Someone pulls the stake out of the bones of Dracula and he reforms and it's Bella. Right. And then we get that movie. Maybe he finds out that his daughter's been killed and <laughs> we pick up from there. Or even even this movie could work with Bella with like a detail like that explaining it. You know, I mean, the, you don't necessarily have to show it, but like the bulk of this movie could work if while Catherine was in Europe, you know, she had this encounter, the stake came out, he rematerialized. One line of dialogue and you've got this movie figured out but i mean i'm kind of on bella's side here i'm not surprised but i am disappointed that this guy put universal on the map and they just sort of used and abused him and then when the time came to do dracula again they just snubbed him entirely shitty but you know it is what it is yeah it's too bad and you know who's to say if it was like they had all their eggs in one basket at a time that's what it feels like to me over at that studio where it's like i'm sorry but like we're invested in lon cheney and like that's it yeah <laughs> like, we don't have the energy or the expense as much as we would love to to kind of like you know do this with someone else if we can well lugosi did however get to make the return of the vampire which was also released in 1943 and many view that as a sort of unofficial sequel to dracula it's a solid vampire movie i think it plays with the rules of vampires it's you know it's different it does, it's not totally consistent with the 1931 dracula however it is really nice to see bella lugosi as a vampire again so definitely worth checking out for those who haven't seen it again nothing nothing really against don cheney but when we look at retrospectives of vampires like i never see him show up but when we look at retrospectives of lon cheney i always see the wolfman you know so history has sort of decided i guess yeah, so Louise Albritton here playing Catherine Caldwell, kind of against type. She was typically a blonde-haired actress uh, of stage and screen, known for sunny, strong-willed characters that she played in a plethora of Universal's comedies, including the 1942 Abbott and Costello film, Who Done It? Oh, cool. She's totally, like, playing a role unlike just about everything else she had done in her career. I think she's pretty good. Yeah. I wish it was a little better written. Not her character. I just wish, like, we'll get there, but, like, I just wish that they wrote, like, her hiding spots better, maybe, or, or certain <laughs> things that happened during the day. But I like her a lot, actually. I wasn't expecting her to have so much screen time, and I'm glad that she does. And she's, like, um, you know, pulling the strings behind the scenes of this entire movie. I gotta say, like, there were times when she surprised me. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. I don't think her character is necessarily like the issue with this movie. I think it's one of the better things about this movie is what they were trying to do with Catherine. Oh, I agree. And especially being this far removed from when it was released, I think that we as audience members, we benefit from not really being familiar with her other work at the time. Audiences in 1943 would have been used to seeing her play these like sort of comedic love interests in a variety of other films. So seeing her here and not being aware of her, the rest of her filmography, I don't think twice about it. I, I totally buy her performance here. I think it's great. Like she's doing the best she can with this material for sure. And I really like this as a character because we often talk about how few of these like strong women characters that Universal had in these films. And she stands out, you know, she stands out with The Bride of Frankenstein, with Dracula's Daughter and the others that we've we've, we've celebrated here. But uh, so yeah, I I'm, I'm love Louise Albritton here. Oh man, I'm starting to wonder now that you say that she was more known for comedy, that they were gearing these more towards kids. 
like, I hope this wasn't presented as sort of a parody of anything at the time, because <laughs> it, it might come close. You know, if you were to say, like, what she's doing is sort of ironic or something like sure. that. But I'm glad that we weren't familiar with any anything prior, because I like the concept, and I think it's one of the better executed parts of the movie in general, so... We've got Robert Page as Frank Stanley. Now, Page worked in the mid-1930s using the name David Carlyle, and apparently he really wanted to work at Universal. He did many as four screen tests for them before they finally signed him. Throughout the 1940s, he had become a popular leading man with the studio. They even groomed him as a musical star. So by the 1950s, his career was beginning to peter out, and in 1953, he played the romantic lead in 1953's Abbott and Costello Go to Mars before becoming a game show host and then later a newscaster wow wow we could like cobble together an abby costello movie out of this cast we really could yeah i love this guy's sort of story i mean it's tragic and that his acting career didn't really blow up the way he thought it would he had a moment as they say but as far as i could tell he really like wasn't a horror guy he happened to be cast in this movie he's basically i've referred to him as this movie's renfield he also kind of works as this movie's john harker he's kind of a, a hybrid of those two characters and i think he does a great job here but yeah this is not his forte he was more of a, of a musical star so it's interesting to see him play this so this character i actually really like i think that he sort of like john harker he's a little bit bland in the beginning but once he has his breakdown and starts to unravel he is one of the characters i like most in this movie yeah i think he's actually pretty awesome yeah this guy is maybe the best I actually forget yeah this guy has the best performance in the entire movie probably the best role the way that he's played and i don't mean the way that robert page is playing frank i mean the way that frank is getting played in this movie would make you lose your mind yeah oh he's he's the most dynamic character by far i don't think anybody else really changes over the course of this movie, like everybody's kind of on their path to accomplish whatever goal it is they have. Frank is collateral damage and he's the one who ultimately has to stop everything that's going on while also having a mental breakdown. So yeah, I, I love this by far the, the most complex character in the whole movie. Yeah, I'm surprised because I would have thought this guy has a, uh, a future in, in horror and crime films and yeah. stuff like he's very handsome but he also he's kind of got that Dwight Fry look in his eye once he goes insane so I really enjoy watching this guy go through his misery on screen in this movie <laughs> so we got Frank Craven as Dr. Harry Brewster Craven was a former playwright most well known for originating the role of the stage manager in Thornton Wilder's Our Town he later reprised that role in the 1940 film version so if you're familiar with that play or that particular adaptation of it. Frank Craven, that's kind of his claim to fame, which I thought was interesting. Over the course of his career, he became known for playing sort of wry, small-town characters, not unlike Harry Brewster. So what we see here is pretty representative of the characters he played his entire career. I got a lot of thoughts about Dr. Brewster and everything. Like, I think he's fine and all. It's just so strange to me how much of the movie he takes over. Like, it's also strange that, like, he would have made such a great inspector or detective or commissioner or something. Like, he seems like a good detective. Like, why is he a doctor? I don't know. I have a hard time connecting with this guy for some reason. It just it just throws me off how much he becomes in charge. I just I have a hard time relating to him. I think it's the character. Frank Craven does as well as anybody could with, with the with the script. But I think the problem with the character is that, it, you know, he's our detective, right? He's a doctor. Okay, fine. You don't need to be, a, you know, a policeman to be a detective if noir has taught us anything. However, 
Throughout this entire movie, he is always reliant upon the expertise of somebody else. So really, he exists to receive information and then take us to the person who will explain it. And I think that that's where this movie really falters is that you don't we don't have a main character, this like detective who has any legitimate know-how of his own. He's literally just chasing a lead from point to point to point throughout the whole movie, but doesn't know what any of the dots mean. So he's always got to bring somebody else in, usually Professor Laszlo, to explain what's happening. Unlike Van Helsing, who knows what's up and is trying to convince everybody else he's just not as interesting as a character as van helsing and so it's tough to follow him for for 80 minutes yeah i guess what i expected from this movie more was for was to follow frank a little closer and for him to be like the audience surrogate right but instead it sort of becomes dr brewster but you know like you said like he's just gathering information in one scene and telling it to someone else in another and that's not really what that type of character is supposed to do you know he's supposed to take that information and do something with it and move the story forward and i just feel like that kind of just doesn't happen very much in this movie yeah i just got thrown you know what i yeah. mean like yeah. that happens every once in a while like you, you think you're following one set of characters and all of a sudden we're following this guy for most of the movie yeah, I kind of wish that as much as this movie does subvert traditional archetypes of Dracula, I kind of wish that Professor Laszlo played a bigger role in this and was more proactive in, in hunting this vampire because then it would solve that problem. Frank Craven could be sort of his sidekick, right, for these scenes. But because they're almost never together until the end, we get this back and forth, you know, collect information, go get, go, go find out what it means. And so it just, it just slows everything down. If Lazo had a beefed up role, then he could just be in all these scenes and explain it as it happens. And then we're, we're moving, right? It, it just becomes more efficient. Yeah. So we don't get that, unfortunately, but Professor Laszlo, that's J. Edward Bromberg, one of our favorites. I recognized him this time. Yes. And I couldn't remember. So it had been a while for me since I had last watched this. And, and now I know who this actor is. I think the first time we see him, he's, he's talking to Dr. Brewster on the phone. And I couldn't remember if there was more screen time for him. I thought, is this it? Is this all we're going to get? Because, you know, he's not billed very high in the cast list. And so I was very happy to see him again and again and again. So, yeah, and I think this is the last time we will see him in a Universal monster film. Don't quote me on that, but I do believe this is it for him. But I've enjoyed the three roles I've seen him play. He's always entertaining to watch, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh, man, that role in Invisible Agent is one of the best. That performance is insane. Here, he's great. Like, I would have loved it if he was just the descendant of Van Helsing, and that's how he knew so much shit. And, you know, and Dr. Brewster's like, yes, I'm trying to reach the descendants of Dr. Van Helsing. And he's like, you have reached the descendant of that, you know, and I have all of his kit and I have everything and I've got his diary and this and that. Like, I mean, but then again, you know, they're not doing the first movie over. They're trying to take elements of the first movie and like twist them and change them and subvert your expectations at least a little bit but yeah i love this performance in this i thought i thought it was cool and i'm glad he came back into the movie sort of as little sense as it made i'm glad that he was there to sort of help out and and convince everybody what they were dealing with you mentioned claire earlier claire played by evelyn anchors the queen of the bees we've seen her quite a few times if you want to hear more about her we can go back and listen to our wolfman episode i think that's where we first see her and yeah she's got a pretty incredible career and more horror credits than we could possibly list on this show so definitely check out her imdb criminally underused in this movie even though she's in most of it like i feel like she just disappears at the end and if they had played more up this idea of these two sisters mm -hmm. how incredible 
incredible if she was the one that had to destroy the vampire sister. You know, that's uh-huh. where I thought, like, I was like, there's no way they're going to take it there. But that would have been amazing. Give some of Frank's stuff at the end to, to Claire so that she can come back at the end and, like, run into the nursery and, you know, set her own sister on fire, I guess. Or have Frank and Claire, like, team up. You know, I feel like we didn't really get enough of them together. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we've seen so much of Evelyn at this point. Like, I get it. But yeah, it would have been nice to see more of her her here as well. We got cinematography by George Robinson. We've seen his work before in Dracula's Daughter, Son of Frankenstein, The Mummy's Tomb, and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Perfectly suited to directing a film by Robert Siodmak. I think that the noir sensibilities here definitely, that's what we're seeing on the screen, this marriage of ideas, this, this collaboration here. So love seeing George Robinson's work here. I like it, but it's different. There's less detail i don't know really how to explain it like it still works don't get me wrong or anything but like noticeably like i'm i could tell like okay this feels a little more like crime Mm -hmm. i guess than Mm -hmm. horror which is fine again that's that's cool because there is a crime going on in this movie so yeah but i don't don't think it ventures so far out as to not feel like it's set in the same world as these other movies that he's shot. I don't really have trouble believing that this and Dracula's daughter are set in the same universe. No, especially when we see his like his graveyards, you know, everybody seems to to nail it when when it really counts and there's a couple of really awesome shots in this, you know, and some really fun transformation shots. Yeah, and there's some firsts. It's funny that you mentioned the transformation shots. We'll get to them, but some of them are firsts for vampires in movies, so can't wait to get to that. There's a couple things. There wasn't a whole lot of like backstage or behind-the-scenes drama or anything like that to talk about. However, I did find some stuff that was cut out. Eric Taylor's shooting script included a bunch of material that was either never shot or was ultimately left on the cutting room floor. One of these scenes involved Dracula as a wolf transforming into a bat as he pursued Frank after their first confrontation at Dark Oaks. Laszlo mentions he can turn into a wolf. That'd be cool. And we know Dracula can become a wolf from Todd Browning's film as well. We don't see it ever, but there's that sequence where Dracula escapes off the balcony, and then I think John Harker like points out into the yard, like, look, at there's a wolf running into the woods. So there's been allusions to Dracula being able to change into a bat and a wolf, but we would have seen it happen here. Uh, I don't think that scene was actually shot, but another scene that was filmed uh, and then eventually left out involved all of the plantation servants packing up and running away as bat circled the mansion overhead probably best to leave that one out i guess there's really nothing really in it that serves the story that was the thing about the movie too that i guess supposed to be new orleans we're in the deep south and everything but there are there's a lot of servants in this movie and there's a lot of mention of stuff like you're not gonna have any servants up at dark oaks and she's like nope gonna do it all ourselves and then dracula is always walking around talking about like the race of this country and stuff. I'm like, what are we we trying to get at with some of this, you know? So like, I'm glad they cut a bunch of it because it just probably would have come off poorly, you know, like the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, anytime where a movie is set on a plantation with a bunch of black servants, it, it gets a little bit questionable, right? Especially around this time. For the most part, I think it kind of stays away from the blatantly offensive territory. Oh yeah, no, it, it seems just like this. this is the product of the times we live in. Like, yeah. They're not pushing them, they're not pushing that stuff for comedy whatsoever. I will, I will say that much. But interesting fact, I actually just learned this. One of the servants in the house was played by Etta McDaniel, and she is the sister 
of Academy Award winner Hattie McDaniel. And then one one detail that was left out, which is probably the best omission that I could find. So the movie never really establishes the reason for Count Alucard coming to Dark Oaks. When the movie starts, he is arriving, and all we know is that he was sort of invited over by Catherine while she was in Europe. But there was a detail in the script where they did actually explain his reason for visiting, and it was duck hunting. Duck hunting? Or at least that's the reason he gave for his visit. And I'm so glad that <laughs> that was cut out. It's like the worst thing I could possibly imagine. That's hilarious. Yeah. So that's pretty much all I, I've got for uh, the production of Son of Dracula. With that, let's get into the movie itself. We still have our, our same old universal picture graphic. But we do get one of my favorite like title cards so far. Like the movie opens with the cobwebs and, and the hand comes in and like clears them all away and wipes out this blackboard that says Son of Dracula. Just a really cool opening title sequence, I thought. Yeah, I agree. So the movie opens at the train station, and we don't know who these characters are just yet, but we see Dr. Brewster and Frank waiting at the train station to receive Dr. Alucard. And he is not there, but his luggage shows up. And like you sort of mentioned this before, the movie just explains everything for us right out of the gate, right? So we see Dr. Alucard's seal on the luggage. I think Dr. Brewster starts spelling it backwards, like as if to point out that, oh, it's Dracula backwards. But he hasn't gotten that far yet. Just so silly. <laughs> I couldn't believe that in the first scene they spoiled that because to me, I was waiting for like the halfway point where he sees it in a reflection of a mirror. You know, mirrors, Dracula. And then for the mirror to kind of give him away again, in a different manner, you know, instead of not seeing him in the mirror, you get the reflection of his tag and it spells out his name and stuff. Um, so I was I was just like, whoa, I can't believe like you didn't save that for anything. But aside from that, this scene reminds me of the opening to like Midnight Mass where like they go to pick up the dude and he's not there and uh -huh. all that's there is like all this baggage and stuff. And if he is there, they don't recognize him or anything. And I was like, OK, this feels like a vampire movie to begin with. Mysterious boxes filled with shit and no one around to claim them. We're expecting some dude. What's going on? But like the, I realized like that's the whole scene. I think the only real point of the scene is to show us, the audience, that Count Dracula has come to town. His name is Count Alucard, which is just maybe like a step above Dr. Acula. You know, like as far as uh, fake vampire names go. I mean, Dr. Acula, you know, would take me longer as a kid. So with the luggage uh, received, we visit Dark Oaks, which we know is a like a southern plantation. We know it's in, in New Orleans and we meet Catherine. Catherine, we kind of get the sense that she's really into the macabre, right? She's very interested in thoughts of everlasting life, the occult and all those things. Later, they describe her as like morbid or fascination with being morbid. She might, they're setting up that she might already be psychic. Like I thought that was cool, but that's not true. It's just, <laughs> I just thought that was what was going on. She might think that she has powers already, but what I do like about this scene is that what we'll find out after watching the whole movie is like there is some rewatch value to watching her character because from the beginning she's already like three or four steps ahead mm -hmm. and that's kind of cool to realize talking about it um, after the fact. Right. We also get to meet Claire, her sister. We established that relationship. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. Like, they're very different. I wasn't convinced they were sisters, blood sisters. You know, I thought maybe they were stepsisters, or I thought there was some rift we never 
hear anything about a mother is it their dad who dies or their grandfather that's taking care of them like all of this is so murky to me yeah and not that it's gonna matter down the line but i just wish that they spent a little more time kind of developing relationships so that when the shit hits the fan i'm a little more like on edge like i care a little bit more uh, i'm still gonna care but like i just wish i cared a bit more yeah, no, for sure. I can see that. After that, we meet Madame Zimba, who is a gypsy woman who Catherine has... Well, uh, the movie, most of the characters in the movie call her Kay, so we, we can we can just call her Kay. Well, they call her Kay for the first half, and then they start calling her Catherine, and I was like, wait a second. I didn't catch that. All right, we can just call her Catherine then. We meet Madame Zimba, who Catherine has brought back from Europe. Apparently, like, with her interest in sort of the dark arts, the occult, and, and all of that, she, I guess she felt she needed some of that gypsy magic at her beck and call. Yeah, this is wild. So she heads out into the swamp to this, like, little encampment, and Zimba kind of gives her this, like, bad omen, right? Like, some some darkness is coming, and kind of, it's a warning, right? It's like, it's, it's an old-school, old-fashioned warning. It's like that flashback on Game of Thrones when the queen was a child. And yes! Saw the, like, fortune teller, you know? But, but dude, what a shitty plantation. It's just, like, a bog and swamps, and, like, shouldn't they be growing, like, fields of... I don't know, cotton or something. Like, I don't know what is going on here, but it's wild that she brought this woman back just to like keep on her property for when she needed, you know, a tarot reading. <laughs> right. it, it's just insane. And then, and then what ends up happening, you know, like this giant bat comes flying through mm -hmm. and right in front of Kay, we don't see it. It's off screen, but the bat kills Madame Zimba. I was like, that's it. No more, no more Zimba. That's it. <laughs> yeah. It just feels like give us one more scene. Something. <laughs> I was shocked. I was very surprised. No more Madame Zimba. Yeah, well, I mean, she, she served her purpose. And I feel like if she had lived any longer, then she may have interfered with Count Alucard's plans. But this is also very Wolfman. Yeah, oh, oh, 100%. Yeah, that's why this is here, too. Yeah, in some sort of like visual way, whether it's intentional or not, I think this definitely establishes that vampires and werewolves all kind of exist in the same universe, right? Like we already had two monsters meet. Now it won't be such a weird thing when we see Dracula and the Wolfman and this Frankenstein monster all together in the same movie. Maybe that was the thinking. Maybe it wasn't. I suspect it probably wasn't. But for the viewer, you know, as we watch these in chronological order, it definitely serves that purpose, right? Like we definitely um, can buy that Dracula exists in the same world with all these other characters. I think because of a scene like that. Yeah, I like those visual cues reappearing film to film mm -hmm. like that. Like, I think that's interesting. It keeps me connected better. And, you know, I would also just assume there's no gypsies in America around this time, probably. So you got to bring one over from Europe. So, I mean, you have to explain it somehow. But also, it would have been cooler if they kind of touched upon maybe the history of New Orleans a little bit more with this entire movie thematically and you know she could have got to someone more local I mm. think is all I'm kind of thinking now yeah I mean with New Orleans you would have plenty of people who with access to like sort of Haitian like voodoo magic maybe that could have been worked in as an angle maybe it's better that they went with a, a European character instead i see ways we could do it today in 2020 that might work better but at the same time maybe i want i worry a little bit of how that would have gone in 1943 it's definitely strange to to have this woman bring a gypsy lady from europe just to give her fortune readings and all that so but back at the homestead there is a big soiree happening i don't even think they really established the reason for it is it just a party 
So we find out that it's in honor of Alucard, who's supposed to have shown up, but he shows up like after the party. But it's mentioned later that that was supposed to be for him. But no one's saying anything about it at the party. So I don't know why they're throwing a party at the moment either. Yeah, and it's as soon as the party starts, they establish Alucard is outside. And Colonel Caldwell, like, immediately is like, I'm ready for bed. I'm going to go upstairs. He's wheelchair bound, so he's got people, like, taking him up to his bedroom so he can have a cigar and retire for the evening. So, like, we meet this character and he immediately is exiting the scene. Yeah, it's going to be sort of par for the course in this movie. It's very weird. Even when Lon Chaney shows up, like, the shot, like, kind of falls back on him and he, he, he like, turns and looks at the camera as if to say, like, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what are we, what tone are we trying to establish? And then this is when we see the first Bat-to-Man transformation on screen. I don't think that it's just for the Universal Monsters. I think it's ever. The first time anyone had ever seen a bat transform into a man and vice versa. Very cool. All right. Given 1943, I think it's accomplished really well. Obviously, there's some animation uh, going on in those sequences, but I buy it. Considering that the bats are still just sort of like rubber bats on wires, the transformation works for me. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy the bits of animation of the transitioning between human to bat so much that I wish he just remained a cartoon bat as it flew around. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think I think I might have preferred that over this uh, Spirit Halloween prop. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to see it from being back in the day, but they've done better stuff than this before. And I get used to it because it appears so much, the giant bat, it feels like it gets bigger and bigger also. Oh, wait. oh <laughs> which yeah. Which is kind of interesting. But I, I would have been fine if they just cartooned the bat the whole way through because it's really smooth, all of the other tricks they pull for it to change. Like, he kind of backs into the camera and a, bit, a little puff of smoke, and then he's the bat. I, I like that. Yeah. Within the next couple of minutes, we get news that Queen Zimba has died. We establish that Frank is Catherine's fiance, and he is very concerned about her obsession with living forever and uh, all of the occult stuff she's really into. He's concerned about this relationship that she has with Count Alucard. Like, dude realizes he's kind of a cuck here, I think. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And they're also setting up like he's a skeptic. You know, he doesn't really believe in all this superstitious, mm -hmm. supernatural kind of stuff either. And and Kay does this thing where she's like, you know, she says here, it comes back much later in the movie, but it's the one thing they do set up where she's like, no matter what I do, if you love me, you just have to trust me and right. like, keep going with it. It's kind of what she's saying. Later in the movie, I'm like, man, you should have just told him what was up. You should have just let him in on the secret and like maybe it would have saved a lot of hassle. Right. But we get all that where it's like, I know you love me and I love you. And yeah, this guy's coming, but whatever. Like, you're just going to have to take my word for it. Like, we're not together. No matter what you see, it's not what it's not what you think. Uh -huh. It's like, that's a lot to ask for, man. Yes, it is. But I think that they get away with it to some degree because, like, they've known each other forever, like, since they were kids. And so the fact that they have been presumably friends and now lovers and been just familiar with each other for that period of time, that there's some trust that's been built up, right? So, like, as an audience member, yeah, you want her to just be upfront and open with him. But, like, you know, it's, it's, it's 1943. And when you're into weird occult shit, maybe you just keep that to yourself. It's harder because, like, when you're in a relationship, with someone okay you can't keep 
like life changing secrets from them that's gonna alter their life. Oh, 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 of course. Like she's like, I know it's better for you, and I'm not even gonna tell you what's going on, and like I'm gonna just like force this upon you. And and he's sitting there going like, I don't want to live forever. It's like she still goes through, it and like the whole idea is that they could live together forever. And he's like, I don't, you know, I'm not into that. But you know, it's all good intentions and everything, you know. But it's like you gotta listen to your partner and make these kind of decisions together, and like talk through this stuff. It's like what would living forever together really be like yeah and she never really ventures from that path i would love to understand what their relationship was like before she went to europe right even by the end she's like no this is what we're gonna do it's gonna be great and he's still like no this sounds horrible why are we still doing this so i'd love to know what their relationship was before all of this we just don't get that information in the movie unfortunately yeah, it's just wild. You know, I don't think the movie's trying to say anything about if you're in a relationship, you need to be more open with each other. <laughs> no. But being in a relationship, that's all I was like thinking about. I was like, of course, it's too big a secret. Yeah. Also, in around this time, we see Count Alucard enter the, the bedroom of Colonel Caldwell. And shortly after that conversation between Catherine and Frank, there's news that her father is, is found dead. Um, they assume that it was a heart attack, but he's just sort of found laying dead on his bed. Yeah, scared to death, possibly. Yeah. I love that. And this is where Count Alucard finally shows up to the party. And Lon Chaney speaks for the first time. <laughs> um, yeah, let me into the house. <laughs> <laughs> we get a little bit of that vampire sort of mind control. It orders the servant to announce him so he can enter the building. I was like, all right, no accent. I think this is going to be okay. He's going to do It's like an American vampire. We'll see where this goes. It's Son of Dracula. At this point, I, I was like, I know Alucard is Dracula backwards, but maybe they're still going to say like he took his father's name and he reversed it. Like I was still holding out hope that this was the Son of Dracula at this point. You know, it hasn't been confirmed. So like still holding on. So when he talked without the accent at first, I was like, all right. But as the movie goes on, it just, you know, it just feels off mm -hmm. it just feels like maybe not an accent but he should have done something like gravelly voice or i don't know because he's got such a interesting voice to begin with it feels like he could do more with it if he had done anything to differentiate himself from larry talbot i think it would have worked better maybe if i ever play a vampire like it would be you know they bite you on the neck so like what if it like hit a vocal cord and he had it's like a bad like you know sure. vocal cord thing like, like that could be an interesting take on on a dracula one day yeah yeah I, like i said I, I really think that any choice would have been better than just his normal english speaking voice because all i hear is larry talbot you're gonna let me in yeah <laughs> you just gotta let me in so after the party, we check back in with Dr. Brewster, who is writing Alucard. And again, another visual cue that Alucard is Dracula backwards, is trying to get in touch with Professor Laszlo because he's Hungarian. He knows Alucard is from Hungary as well. This is where we meet Professor Laszlo. He asks him if Alucard's part of the embassy. Was that mentioned that this guy is like an ambassador of some kind? You know, that he's passing himself off as like dignitary? I think this is like the first time that information see that's just what's weird about this movie is like i don't know how information is going to come at me it just feels so matter of fact it feels like everything is just kind of like a throwaway thing it just kind of caught me off guard the whole movie 
Yeah, it's unclear. I think he's just trying to get as much information as he can. If he's a count, he is a man of some nobility in Hungary. Possibly Professor Laszlo knows something about him. Unfortunately, he doesn't. I don't think there's any real record of a Count Alucard in Hungary. So then uh, Dr. Brewster asks the obvious, which is, do you know anything about a Count Dracula? I think he says out loud that the name is literally Dracula backwards. Then we get from Professor Laszlo that the last Count Dracula died in the Middle Ages. And this gets the wheels turning. Now suddenly we're talking Dracula, and this is eventually what's going to roll into this detective story, tracking down this potential vampire. I like it that Dr. Brewster thinks it's uh, plausible. Like, mm -hmm. oh, well, this, this I'm not going to discount this just because it sounds... Uh, like a fantasy or whatever. Like, you know, this guy I'm talking to is sort of corroborating some evidence or whatever, and I'm getting some facts from this guy. And I like this phone call, to be quite honest. Like, this is a pretty interesting info dump, you know, the way that they bring back information about Dracula and the last time and that name. No one would ever go by that name. It's mm -hmm. cursed. I, I like how they develop, like, this little relationship over the phone. Like, I never thought that Laszlo would come back after he hangs up, but I like that Dr. Brewster is sort of becoming like a Fox Mulder kind of I was guy. <laughs> I, I was just about to say that they're kind of like a Mulder and Scully. I see Laszlo as like the Fox Mulder of this pair, you know, because he, he says that he doesn't specifically believe in the existence of vampires, but there are things that he cannot disprove. And so by virtue of that, he can't say with any degree of certainty that vampires don't exist. So like, it's almost like an I want to believe situation. Whereas Dr. Brewster, he's entertaining him, but I don't know that he actually really believes that vampires could be real you know but yeah i love that laszlo's kind of playing the skeptic but definitely leaning into the yeah i think this is definitely possible yeah it's pretty cool and when they do get together they're a nice team you know maybe they needed to get together sooner maybe just the phone call needed to be like i think you need to come down here dr laszlo like i'm paying for your voyage and dr laszlo be like i'm on my way sure that's all i needed and then just have them be there earlier and that'd be awesome yeah, I definitely think that they should they should have had these two together more often. The next scene is the reading of Colonel Caldwell's will. And curious event unfolds here. So as the I guess the, the family attorney is ready to read the will, Catherine points out that there was a more recent will written out. And so she, for whatever reason, she had it kind of hidden away. She pulls it from its hiding place and it turns out to be totally legitimate. Basically what it stipulates is that instead of dividing everything up down the middle, Catherine will receive the house and then the, the property and Claire will receive the rest of the family fortune, I guess, right? So all Catherine's going to get is the house which is all she wanted. Yeah, the Dark Oaks plantation. That was so awkward. Usually in a movie where someone's like, but there's another will, it's like they want everything, not less. Right. It was so confusing. They didn't like need that to happen. She could have just been like, I don't need the money. Just give me the plantation. And the sister could have been like, oh, fine. Like whatever, you know, to make you happy. And like, we're all grieving, whatever. It's not like Claire says anything in this meeting anyway to, to, to like protest about it or anything like that. You just hear Kay being like, I want to live there alone by myself forever. I love it. Or maybe with Frank, if Frank is down. Presumably, maybe she just didn't want to leave it up to a conversation with her sister. It just feels so much colder you it know does. it just feels like if they're doing it this way that she's trying to create some kind of rift that the movie is making me feel claire and her are gonna like throw down at the last minute you know at the end of the movie at the you know in the final reel like it's gonna come down to the two of them but 
we never really get there. Yeah, you have to consider that if she hadn't had this secret second will, right, and she just decided to let the original will stand and then try to work out with her sister to get the house, she may have to explain why, and I don't know that she could have been guaranteed the house by saying, hey, uh, I'm going to marry a, a vampire and live forever, and this is what... You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, what, 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 would right. her, what would her reasonable excuse be for wanting only the house? So by this point, having the, the will read and dad's dead there's not really anything claire can do about it so i get what you're saying and there's probably more to this sister relationship than the script really allows for but just from a logic point of view if i were Catherine, and that's what i needed right if i absolutely had to have the house and didn't care about anything else then it makes sense to me that she would resort to like smoke and mirrors and theatricality to get what she wants because legally speaking she doesn't have to explain herself claire is going to be filled with questions of course but she doesn't have to justify it i guess the only problem is that like it sets claire off like she starts becoming suspicious like immediately <laughs> like on the one hand yeah it's airtight you get the house and stuff but claire's like but what the hell like why would she do that is this alucard guy like a thing with her like are they a thing what is she planning like her and the doctor are like trying to like theorize like what's going on like and then they're mentioning like maybe someone's in the guest house like now there's like a reason we can't be on the plantation so like all the more suspicious so claire and dr brewster kind of leave frank and Catherine in privacy back in, in, in that room and the two of them have a conversation where claire is starting to suspect that Catherine has no intention of marrying frank and that she's going to marry this stranger this count Alucard. Whatever it is, she just has a feeling about it because of everything that's happened in the past couple days. So she she voices some of her reservations about that whole situation. She overheard uh, the two of them talking privately, both Catherine and, and Count Alucard. And I believe Alucard is going to be living in the guest house on the property. So she's just suspicious of her sister now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like Kay is just raising more suspicion. Like I understand like it's my property now, but now that now there's a reason for them to want to break in. It's like I want you off my property because Dracula's living in my guest house. And they're like, I wonder what's up with that guy living in the guest house. I appreciate Kay being being like, you know, stay off my yard, but they're going to Scooby-Doo it and like break into the guest house in the next scene. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. That's where all of Alucard's luggage has been brought. They find one of his cases in the uh, living room there. And when they open it up, it is empty. Yeah, I like how Dr. Brewster's like, well, this may be unethical, but let's do it. And then they like look out the window and see Frank riding a horse alone. I felt so bad for him. Yeah, he has, he has absolutely no idea what's going on. The doctor is like already though, he has like this weird sense of danger because he starts telling Claire to like leave town already, you know? I was like, why are you telling her now to leave town? And he's like, I think your sister might be insane. We could have like an insanity complaint drawn against her. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, just tell her about your Dracula theory, man. Tell her about the phone call. Yeah, I was like, this is all because Professor Laszlo just entertaining the possibility of a vampire and now we've got dr brewster who's like i, I fucking knew it dude's a, dude's a vampire gotta save her there's a box in the guest house with nothing in it vampire it's like <laughs> she changed the will she must be insane like why and like later the judge is even going to be like you're probably crazy for wanting to bring this insanity complaint up against k like there's no bearing to this whatsoever 
So Catherine, not really one for subtlety, takes off in her car and heads into the, the swamp, tailed by Frank, of course. I think everybody is is on to her, at least that she's up to something, right? Like everybody knows something's off. She heads into the swamp and I actually really like this sequence, right? We see Alucard's, like, it's not a coffin, right? It's like a big case, like a big piece of luggage. Yeah, it's like a crate. Yeah, it rises up out of the swamp. And then this is the first time we've seen anything like this, I believe. Alucard rises up out of this case as a mist and then hovers across the swamp, which is really cool. This was really dope. Like, first of all, I think that's an amazing hiding space under the water like that. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you, you get in your coffin and you go under the water like no one's gonna find you during like that's a great hiding spot and the smoke the vapor turning into dracula is sweet and him floating across water like some kind of evil jesus thing and that whole shot is moving across the water somehow going the k with like her arms out like just this is one of the best moments in the movie yeah from a visual standpoint i agree i think that there, there's a lot of really cool just vampire stuff put it simply some of the most impressive vampire things that i've seen are in francis ford coppola's bram stoker's dracula i love watching sort of the evolution of what vampires can do in terms of like changing shape and whatnot. So we're starting to see the beginnings of that here. We, I mean, we know he can change into a bat or, or a wolf, but I've, I don't think we've ever seen like a mist before. So I love watching these vampire rules sort of change from movie to movie and evolve and, and, and expand. So yeah, I, I love this whole sequence. I don't think we've ever seen a vampire just like float across water like that before either. Now, have we seen a vampire ride in a car before? <laughs> because that kind of throws me off when that happens. I'm like, you're just gonna ride shotgun, huh? You're not even gonna fly next to it or nothing, right? You're not, okay. I think we're keeping a low profile right now. What they're going to do is get married. As soon as he rises from the, the swamp, they head to the justice of the peace. Right. And I think that just for appearances sake, it's probably better for him to ride shotgun. But you're right. It does seem strange. I guess, man. But it's like three in the morning. Like they wake up the justice of the peace. He's like, what? You want to do what? Can this wait like five hours? No, we got to get married right now. Dan, you perform wedding receptions, right? OK, like you are a licensed minister. OK, what if these two folk just knocked on your door in the middle of the night? You'd be cool with this? Like, Come on in. You know, my girlfriend will put on the kettle and like I'll get my shit and, you know, we'll be married. Look, I'm not saying it wouldn't be strange. It would definitely be weird. But you never turn away a dollar or a couple in love. <laughs> no, if they got a couple hundred bucks and they want to get married at three in the morning. Sure. Who am I to turn them away? But yeah, it's, it's definitely strange. I love it, though. Like I'm starting I'm starting to enjoy it more because of this weirdness. Like it's not that it's necessarily bad. OK, it's sure. just like weird to me. That's all. That's all. It's, it's just monsters in America. I still can't get a grip on it for some reason. You know, I was having a bit of trouble with the mummy last time. And it's just I prefer them to be in other countries. I, I can't explain it entirely yet. Yeah, it does have a strangeness to it. So now with Catherine and Alucard legally wed, they return back to what is now their marital home. Of course, Frank's been tailing them the entire time. And so while they are 
sort of planning their future or talking about their future. Frank uh, arrives at the door and he's got some words <laughs> for Catherine. First, I like how Alucard carries her over the threshold. I thought that was funny. It was very, like, Ozzy and Harriet. Dracula starts talking about race a lot. It's very uncomfortable. I don't know what they're trying to get at there, but, like, here's a man who's coming from Europe in the 40s talking about, like, wanting to dominate the races. Maybe I'm just reading into it too much, but, like, he says it a lot, and he, and he brings it back up later, so I just had to mention something about it. I wonder if that didn't have something to do with what was happening in Europe at the time. Yeah, I mean, they gave him a mustache. He looks a little like, you know, one of those dudes, Stalin. Sure. He left Europe because he had pretty much wiped out everybody there was to have, right? So whether intentional or not, I think there's definitely something you can read here because Dracula literally represents death and destruction and with the Nazis uh, doing what they were doing in Europe at the time, you have now this European, this mysterious European coming to America with the intent to, to destroy the entire populace of the United States. It's definitely worth reading into that. I think there's something to it. I don't think it's entirely unintentional that he's talking about race as much as he is. But he and Frank have a confrontation. Frank fires a couple rounds into Alucard. It seems to pretty much not phase Alucard at all. However, Catherine is standing behind him and she slumps over and appears to die. As far as Frank can tell, the bullets pass through Alucard and struck Catherine, killing her. So he immediately runs back out into the swamp where he is accosted by Alucard in bat form. And I think he, he feeds on Frank, right? Is that what's going on here? Almost. Like he starts to and then Frank has like run and tripped over um, like a fresh grave. And so the moonlight yes. shines the crucifix next to him and saves his life. And, right. and Alucard gets up and like cannot keep going has to flee but i really like their encounter i love the way that lon cheney just grabs him by the throat yep. and fucking throws him across the room like like that is some strength i was not expecting frank to whip out a gun because no we didn't see him take a gun from like they didn't set up any gun or anything we never saw him like shooting from the horse like for sport or anything but all of a sudden he's got a revolver and he just blasts away at this dude and, and you know it's cold-blooded murder right like if he kills alicard and like he's not a vampire he doesn't think he's a vampire so like what is going through his mind right now he's going crazy and they do they go right through him which is sweet i did not expect that to happen because Kay tries to shield herself with alicard knowing that he's a vampire and it can't hurt him but not knowing that they're just gonna pass right through him that was really cool i did not see that coming i thought that was a very interesting development i wonder if k had that planned out maybe that's why she jumped behind dracula that would have been interesting if <laughs> she's like it all went according to my incredibly intricate plan like the joker at the very least i think it's safe to assume she wasn't afraid of death because death would be part of the process to give her eternal life so yeah whether she knew or not i I don't think she was too concerned about her own safety in that situation but i do love seeing dracula exhibit superhuman strength i think this is the first time we see a vampire do that right bella lugosi surely didn't do it and then in dracula's daughter we don't see superhuman strength and as far as i know in other vampire films up to this point 
we haven't seen it. So I, I want to say, I could be wrong. If somebody else knows something that I'm not thinking of, please write to us at themonsterstatmadeus at gmail.com and let us know. But I do think this is the first time we see a vampire with crazy mutant strength. So that's very cool. And I think that's definitely where, where Lon Chaney's casting pays off a bit. So now... After this encounter, Alucard has fled off into the night, and we meet it back up with Dr. Brewster, who is literally reading Dracula. Dude, I was losing it at that point. Because they just cut to the novel Dracula. I'm like, what is this? Like, it doesn't even relate to that scene or anything it's not that part of the book like the book exists in this world like what is happening and then we cut back to see dr brewster reading and i'm like this makes even less sense than if it was just some kind of title card or something right yeah so bram stoker's novel seems to exist within the world of this film which is a fun detail which i guess maybe is based off of the events of the movie in this world right so it's like a reversal kind of thing right right you know like maybe bram stoker heard about the events of the 1931 movie and was like i'm gonna write the book yeah it makes me wonder if in at the beginning of bride of frankenstein when like mary shelley and her husband and lord lord byron are just hanging out telling stories i wonder if bram stoker is somewhere else i don't know now i'm wondering if mary shelley's story was like you know true firsthand you know she was told it by frankenstein himself so the novel, if memory serves, is written in like, it's like correspondence, right? So a lot of it's letters and things. So presumably, if that were real, then Bram Stoker exists in this world and he's like, he's not a novelist, he's just compiled the, the letters yeah, he's just a reporter that compiled all this stuff and made a book out of it, yeah. So um, we meet back up with Frank. Frank shows up at Dr. Brewster's house, and he is starting his sort of Renfield transformation. He looks frazzled, and he's a total mess. Yeah, he looks he looks in complete shock. He confesses. He tells her, you know, I shot Kay. He tells him everything. Part of me is like, we just saw this. Don't tell us again. Like, we know. Like, just go in there and collapse or something. And, you know, the doctor will realize later. But on the other hand, I'm like, I don't know. This is this is cool. At least the doctor is getting filled in on, like, shit he needs to know. So Yeah. Like I said before, this Dr. Brewster as the protagonist kind of is only here to receive and relay information. So here he is receiving information that we already know. But this does add credibility to what Professor Laszlo has said about the potential existence of vampires. So now the ball continues to roll, Dr. Brewster is becoming more convinced that uh, Laszlo may be onto something here now that Frank is sort of helping corroborate that that information. So then once Frank sort of like passes out for the night, Dr. Brewster uses that as a uh, an opportunity to go back to Dark Oaks to do a little bit in, of investigating. And before he gets there, Alucard is kind of preparing his, his new bride for the daytime and he puts her in a coffin of her own. Yeah, he's putting like the dirt in it yes. and everything is like the ceremony. And this is kind of funny because this sort of same thing happened when they first moved in. They were just about to kiss when there was a knock on the door and Frank shows up to interrupt. And now it's like he's putting his bride to bed and like he hears someone rustling outside. It's like trespassers, man. It's like, what the <laughs> hell? That's why I'm like, you got to you're going to need a better hiding spot for her. Right. So Alucard is outside, right? And Dr. Brewster is inside kind of snooping around. He does find Alucard's, like, so it's, again, it's not a coffin. It's like a trunk or, or like a crate that he travels in. He finds that in the basement. Another interesting detail that I don't think we've seen before. He finds, like, chicken bones. Live caged chickens. 
Oh, that was so weird. I love that. Like, more details like that in this movie. Yes. That was so crazy. Because I saw the chickens, and I'm like, what the hell? And then he opens up the box, and there's feathers and stuff inside. I was like, ooh, man, I love what that implies. It, it immediately reminded me of what we do in the shadows when they have to feed Peter, the live chicken. Oh, yeah, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So, yeah, the weirdness is just starting to pile up, right? And as uh, Dr. Brewster is discovering these things Alucard sort of makes himself known to Dr. Brewster and establishes that he is now the lord of the manor master of the house and if he returns uninvited in the future he will be considered a trespasser and uh, drastic measures will need to be taken at that point so he, he kind of does it in a very dracula way where he's like very polite but also very threatening at the same time yeah yeah i really like this moment but then again i like when this always happens in these movies where the sort of the rivals meet mm -hmm. for the first time and then the next time they're gonna throw down they don't really end up throwing down too much but they are gonna meet again in, the, in my favorite scene of the movie when we get there but i just always like when these two have a moment together for some reason um i think cheney is better when he's interacting with Brewster than he is with Kay for some reason. He's just more like imposing and meaner. I love how he's like, you know, when I first arrived, everybody didn't want me here, but now this is my place and I don't want you here. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I'm master of the house. Get the hell out. And he's like, where's Kay? Where's Kay? Um, so he's like, I'll show you where Kay is. And I thought this was cool too. They go upstairs in the bedroom and somehow Kay transformed kind of off screen, I guess, but there she is. And, and this is creepy, man. This was very creepy. I thought she played this really well. I really enjoyed this moment, too, where she's just sitting up in the bed. She's not going to be blinking. She's going to be talking like she's perfectly rational, but she's not at all. And the doc is smart enough to kind of just get through this and get the hell out of there and try and, like, form a plan or something. But, like, she's a vampire now. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I think she's great in this scene. Just like from the moment we first see her and she's just sort of like not blinking, kind of smiling and staring ahead. Maybe the, the creepiest image in, in the whole thing, or, or at least as far as I'm concerned, one of the creepiest performances in the whole movie. One very weird part of this scene, though, that I wish came back more is, um, you know, trying to come up with reasons not to expect to see them around during the day. Dracula's like, I'm a scientist yes. and I got to do research and I do science stuff. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, where did they come up with this? And I was like, maybe they're going to try and cure this, but that's not what they want. Like, what is that about? It feels like in a lot of these movies, if you need your character to be inaccessible for a significant period of time, make them do science stuff. You know, like that's always the excuse. I can't be bothered. I'm doing science. But what does Dracula have science to do? I don't know. It just doesn't go together for me. I'm just saying, that seems to be the go-to excuse whenever one of these characters needs to be left alone, that they're always up to science, even here, where it doesn't really seem to fit, because they haven't explained what Count Alucard does, aside from be a count, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we never really find out more than... He's happy to be in a place with sort of like new people to kill, like a different type of person to control. Like he's happy about that. He doesn't really seem too concerned that like his new wife might be playing him. I'm like, you're Dracula, man. Like you should be sensing this shit. You should have a twist at the end of this to be like, oh, you thought that you were working me? I was working you. 
After this encounter, Dr. Brewster is visited by Judge Simmons, played by Samuel S. Hines. So Dr. Brewster has brought up concerns relating to Catherine's sanity and suspects maybe she needs some sort of medical help in that regard. They want to commit her. Yeah, due to the strangeness of this whole situation with uh, inheriting the estate and uh, getting married overnight to this Count Alucard. So... Unfortunately, the judge just doesn't seem to see any any signs of mental instability. She's eccentric, but basically it's not illegal to be eccentric. I know. He's like, you can't just commit someone for breaking up with their fiance because they're in love with somebody else. Right. <laughs> like, that's not how that works, you know? And okay, like she wants to be alone in a house with a guy and not see her family for a while. Like still, maybe it's not the most normal thing, but like she's not hurting anybody. She's not committing any crime like yeah you're way off base with this like insanity complaint <laughs> whoever heard of such a thing while judge simmons is there he receives a call where he's told that frank has turned himself into the sheriff for killing Catherine. yeah his wife calls him there it's just so funny to me though like it's so almost like american or something to me where you have to like play this game of telephone to like find your husband or something you know where's the doctor oh he's at so-and-so's house so i'll call him from here right like just imagine the police trying to deal with his wife on the phone I'm like here's what you got to tell him when you find him and it's just like just call him at his friend's house or try other places it just seemed like an extra step so if dr brewster tells him straight up like no he's he- he didn't kill Catherine. I saw Catherine last night. She's totally fine. So now... Now they got to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. Now everybody's following these threads. We've got Dr. Brewster. We've got Judge Simmons. We've got Sheriff Dawes, played by Pat Moriarty. All trying to understand just what the hell is going on. And Brewster, I mean, to his credit, he's not yelling vampire just yet, even though he knows that's what's going on. This is where they introduced the sheriff, right? Yes. And- the sheriff isn't having any of this either. He's like, we're going out there and we're checking this out and we're bringing Frank with us. And, and Dr. Brewster's like, like, he's already losing it. We could really push him over the edge. And he's like, ah, I don't care. I don't care. Like, he's coming. He's coming, <laughs> he's coming whether he likes it or not. This guy out of nowhere, man. Yeah, well, I mean, I can understand the sheriff's point of view. You have a man who committed or confessed to committing a murder you got to take that seriously so but yeah we definitely get the sort of the battle of the law and the doctor and i, I love the dynamic at play here while they all like the, the entire group of them go back to dark oaks to see what's up yeah it's actually very tense once that scene starts and it's daytime and the doors open and they start snooping around again and of course it's daytime so Catherine would be hidden in her box alucard likewise and so the house is empty. Also, um, all of Alucard's vampire shit was taken out of the cellar. So there's nothing to corroborate this story, or, or Dr. Brewster's story anyway. As far as anybody else can tell, Frank still remains guilty of murder. And there's a possible cut scene where Frank mentions like a tree fell on his car that night and he couldn't keep up with them. So he didn't know exactly what might have happened. <laughs> like, what? Like, what the hell is he talking about? I was like, why did you throw that in here? But then they're like, well, where, where did you go after you lost your mind? And in, so he goes over to like the graveyard and, and the crypt mm-hmm. area, you know, that whole set, which is a really nice set. It looks great during the day and during the night. It does. And of course, that's where they find Catherine in a coffin. <laughs> now, like Dr. Brewster's an accessory, maybe. Right. He's like, wait, what the hell is going on here? Like, that's a great twist. I like that. That was fun. Yes. This is where it really does become fun and all these different points of view are all sort of 
piling on top of each other. Nobody's really sure what to believe. Yeah, there's like this Chinatown thing where it's like she's alive and she's dead, but like someone killed her, but she's still walking around. But technically she's dead, but she's actually alive. Like, I'm alive and I'm dead, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, she's like a Schrodinger's Catherine Caldwell. So in the next scene, we finally get Dr. Brewster and Professor Laszlo together in the same scene. Yeah, pretty nice. Laszlo is even more convinced that Alucard is a vampire, given all of the information, because he's now up to speed on everything that's been going on, and there's not a doubt in his mind that Alucard is a vampire. Yeah, they read the definition of one here, don't they? He says, A vampire is an earthbound spirit whose body comes to life at night and scours the countryside, satisfying a ravenous appetite for the blood of the living. That it does by drawing it from the throat of its victim. Very cool. That's the definition of a vampire we get in this one. I like that because uh, we got like the definition of the lycanthrope in, in one of the previous movies that we watched recently and stuff. So it's cool that the movies are like throwing out scientific definitions or at least something you'd find in like Tobin's Spirit Guide or something. Oh, for sure. We've said this multiple times in the show. I think that the scientific approach to a lot of this fantastical stuff is the right way to do it. You know, I love trying to explain vampirism on a medical level as opposed to treating it like just a, a boogeyman and, and this is my favorite scene laszlo starts running down the list you know he's like all right if you want to kill him you know you could destroy his grave find that find out where he sleeps destroy that way he won't have anywhere to go at night and that'll screw him during the day or you drive the stake through his heart that's a good thing plus he can morph so like he turns into a bat he turns into a wolf and then as soon as he says he also turns into vapor fucking alucard comes under the door yes. as smoke comes into the office and materializes right in front of him i i love that scene it almost it, it i think it might redeem the whole movie <laughs> it's so awesome that's such a cool idea and they like have this like meeting of the minds for a moment but they're all like we really shouldn't be fucking with each other but it's gonna go down it's gonna go down sooner or later yeah, this is like that scene in Todd Browning's Dracula when Dracula and Van Helsing, like, they know each other in, in that scene, you know? Like, they don't come out and say as much as they do in, in this scene here, but it's the same scene where they're both aware of who the, each other is, and Alucard in this scene does basically flat out say, yeah, he came from Europe because there was nothing left for him there, and he wanted to come to America, which is a young and virile country, you know, with plenty more victims. All the cards are on the table now. You know, there's no there's no hiding. But once again, the crucifix comes into play and drives Alucard back out of the room. I love that scene. I mean, I love watching our sort of hero and our villain have a, like a face off, but like it's all verbal, right? It's not a physical altercation. It's just like just a like you said, like sort of a meeting of the minds or a battle of wits almost. It's a more sophisticated way to play this scene out as opposed to doing like a, a brawl, you know, like we would see in, in a Frankenstein or Wolfman movie. This is sort of like I was saying before, like, you know, they meet they meet before and they're kind of like, you know, introduced in a way. And like this kind of is their fight or as physical as they're going to get because the Count grabs Brewster, but Laszlo has the crucifix. Right. So he whips that out to save Dr. Brewster. And that's when Count Alucard goes off and stuff so like there is a bit of a scuffle which was good too because he never got physical with van helsing really you know it never right. came down to that it was just van helsing like drove the stake through his heart at the end i believe but it was nice to see dracula do his move where he's like 
First, I grab you by the throat. He didn't get a chance to throw him across the room, but he's got to move now. I, I kind of like that. Uh, so with Alucard out on the run, he's not wasting any time. In the next scene, uh, a mother brings her young son into Dr. Brewster's office. Like He's unconscious. He's got these two marks on his neck, which we know are teeth marks. But Brewster puts her to ease. Boy's going to be okay. And then uses, I don't know exactly what he applies to this kid's neck, but he marks them in like the shape of a cross, right? Right? I mean, I've never heard of this before where like some ointment in the shape of a cross on a vampire bite would cure the vampire bite. It's a first for me, I think. Yeah. What is going on? So Alucard gets driven out of the room and immediately just attacks little Tommy on the corner, like feeds on a boy, like pedophilia. Like, what is this? <laughs> like, I am shocked at this sequence. Like, I'm, I'm surprised that this is in there because... Mostly, I, I'm thinking little kids are watching this movie about the age of Tommy. This little boy being fed on by Dracula is so insane, Dan. Just not, I just never in a million years did I think that this scene was going to be in this movie. Uh, I'm still conflicted. I don't know where I land on it. And as far as him, like, marking the boy, like, I don't think that's going to work. Like, that just looks like ointment or something. Like, that looks like the stuff you put on before you're going to, like, make an incision. Like iodine? Yeah, like iodine. I thought he was just going to maybe like try and drain a little bit of the blood out or something like that. But he's like, gives it back to the mom. He's like, your little Tommy's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I was like, no, that's the son of Dracula. Like, we got to check in. We got to check in on that boy after the credits. <laughs> Where is he? Once they treat the little boy for his vampire bite, Professor Laszlo makes a point that Catherine may still be alive like she may now be um one of the undead and not only that but he suspects that it was her choice to become a vampire up to this point anyone who has been turned into a vampire has done so unwillingly this would be the first time we've ever seen anybody choose that life they also want to cremate her as soon as possible theoretically everyone should turn back to normal after dracula's dead We've seen that happen in other movies where the vampire that turns other vampires, if you kill the main vampire, everybody else turns back to normal. I don't know that that logic is at play here. The movie doesn't expand. I thought that was what Dracula's daughter thought was gonna happen. Remember, she's like, oh, he died and I thought I'd turn back to normal, but I'm still not. I'm still a vampire. And this movie, it remains consistent with that logic, which we'll get to the ending when we get there. But uh, yeah, there's no thought of, you know, killing Dracula in order to save Catherine's life. Their only thought right now is to have her cremated because if she is still, quote unquote, alive, then she is very likely a vampire and there's no other cure. You know, she's got to be destroyed somehow. And, and a cremation would be a nice, clean way to do it because if she's already presumed dead, they get her sister Claire to sign off on it and easy peasy. However, Ever. The next scene is all Catherine's scene. She pulls the same vampire mist shit and visits Frank in jail. Yeah, first she escapes the morgue real quick. I thought it was cool because she goes from smoke to bat. Yes. I was like, oh, she didn't turn into a human yet. She just went right into from one to the other. That was cool. Yeah, I enjoyed that as well. And then the jail sequence is, it's long, but it's an interesting idea. It could have been a little shorter, but like, we're going to spend a while in jail now. 
it is a long scene, but the gist of it is Catherine presents herself to Frank and lays out her grand plan. The one that she told him to trust her. You know, this whole movie, like, you gotta trust me, everything's gonna be fine. Well, this is the culmination of everything she's been working towards. Her plan was to become a vampire so that she could live forever. And her goal was to destroy Dracula or Alucard and turn Frank into a vampire so they could live together and be together forever. This is nuts. First, it feels like Neo and the architect, like they spell it out beat by beat and yeah she's like I, I i never would have imagined that this was the plan but she's like i never loved alicard i still love you i had to marry him to become a vampire i'm gonna live forever and i want you to live forever with me so you kill alucard who's actually count dracula in case you haven't figured that <laughs> out i'm telling the audience she's like it's official it's really him he is count dracula just look at his name backwards and, and she's like you gotta kill dracula and then i'll turn you into a vampire and we can live together forever it's insane i was like i don't believe her this can't be the plan this has got to be something she's telling him to get him to do something and then they're gonna kill him you know or whatever but like they she needs to use but no that's the truth well it's the truth but she does need him as she says in the scene that she needs him to be the one to kill Dracula because she is unable to walk around during the day so in this scene she's she's trying to get Frank on her side so that he will be the one to kill Dracula yeah but but I wasn't sure that she was being honest which she is a hundred percent that was the truth remember before when i told you uh, you gotta trust me well this is the crazy shit i had in mind i was like there's no way he's gonna go along with this boy was i wrong I think on some on some level, whether he chose to go along with her plan or not, he was going to have to kill Dracula. This whole movie, like, Dracula can't live. I'm the only one who can kill him at this point. But where things get interesting is afterwards, which we'll get to. He does have to make that choice, right? Do I live forever with Catherine or do I end all of this for good? So, yeah, I think no matter what, whether she's using him or being completely honest with him in this scene, the truth of the matter is he's got to be the one to kill Dracula because he's got all the information and he can move around during the day. So that's going to happen regardless. It was also cool. Didn't she say she didn't like to be called a vampire or something? She likes undead or immortal. I was like, what about Eternals? Is that one taken? That struck me as like a what we do in the shadows kind of moment. Like, you know, we don't actually like being called vampires. We prefer undead. We don't say the V word. Then Catherine heads out because... Claire and Dr. Brewster and everybody else are showing up at the prison to see Frank. So she gets out of Dodge and then Frank kind of unloads everything on Claire. You know, he's like, you're going to think this is crazy, but here's what's going on. And then it kind of has to like spell the whole thing out to Claire. The sheriff is like, man, it doesn't even matter if he did it because that guy's crazy. He talks to himself. Sometimes he even like switches voices and, and the doctor and the professor are like, whoa, 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 what, what, what are you talking about? He's pulling like a like a Norman Bates doing uh, both voices. And then and then Claire's like, we're going to cremate Kay. And Frank like loses it and launches back into that whole thing about like, she's not dead. She's not dead. And then they all like leave. And then Kay, Kay like comes in and out of that jail cell. So <laughs> much. it just like keeps going on and on. 
Yeah, this scene does run a little too long. So Frank's not immediately sold on killing Catherine. He's still kind of like, okay, maybe maybe this can work. Maybe we can bring her back. I don't know. All I know is she's not actually dead, so please don't cremate her. Yeah, and the doc's like, hey, you know, he might be crazy, but just next time he starts talking to himself, like try and listen into what he says. And sure enough, Kay tells him exactly where Dracula is resting, you know, because she's she honestly wants to help. And at this point, I was like, okay, she's not lying. The ruse is up or whatever. Like she can drop her guard and there's no more snooping around as it were it's like here's where you could find them here's how you kill them like go do this thing and then we're good right and then Catherine's even talking about killing dr brewster you know she's like as long as he's alive we're not safe frank's just like okay hey let's take this one at a time all right let's not get ahead of ourselves so already like Catherine is whether or not her t- intentions were righteous which i do think she did everything with the best intent now things are starting to spiral out of control for her like the more people that know they have to die and like all right we can't just become murderers now so all right so we'll think on that for a while right now we have to kill alucard yeah and uh she like turns into mists and breaks them out of jail and everything like that and and the professor is like they formed an unholy alliance i was like oh that's awesome <laughs> yeah they don't know if frank has has officially like joined her or not but they suspect it's possible and if that's the case then everybody's really going to be in some trouble right so they need to find frank and so at this point what there's like 10 minutes left in the movie everybody's just sort of descending upon dark oaks all at the same time Dr. Brewster, Professor Laszlo, and the sheriff, when they realize that Frank is has escaped, he was overheard talking to some other person, they check on Catherine's coffin, right? Because she's she's been in the morgue. When they open that up, she's gone. So this is what leads everybody to head straight to Dark Oaks. Frank knows what he has to do, and he meets Alucard like in the swamps outside of this like tunnel. What is that tunnel that he goes through? So it looks like a like an old mine shaft, but the, but she says it's like a drainage pipe or something like like maybe an, like a sewage pipe. The point is that's where where Alucard's coffin is. That's where he sleeps during the day, and so Frank immediately heads into that tunnel to destroy it when he runs into Alucard and Frank gives everything up you know like he knows Alucard is a vampire and he's here to destroy him yeah he says you're Dracula yeah and Alucard completely underestimates Frank in this moment which I think is great he's like because if you had learned more about me you would know you should have come here after sunrise and now it's not me that's going to be destroyed and so Frank lures Alucard into this like tunnel this is a kind of an awkward sequence I think why doesn't Dracula just grab him. Anyway, he lures Alucard into this tunnel where he sees the coffin has been set on fire. This is maybe where Lon Chaney's Dracula falls apart for me because he is literally begging Frank to put the fire out. I just can't imagine Dracula begging anybody to do anything. He just sort of falls apart in this moment and, and he's panicky and desperate. Yeah, I just I just have a hard time buying that Dracula would behave this way. Yeah, yeah, I agree, man. That's why that's why I wonder if there was like an early draft where it really was the son of Dracula, you know, that way it would be a little more believable. I just don't see Dracula going out like that, you know, to the end he would just try and take Frank out with him or throw him into the fire or do something you know it's just what i thought was gonna happen i thought when dracula was like begging and stuff i thought frank was gonna stab him with a stake at that point but that doesn't happen just the the sun comes up and dracula like falls backwards and like we just see his hand turn into like a skeleton hand it's all very anticlimactic that 
was expecting more to be honest you know like we've come so far with like dissolve techniques and effects and fire <laughs> there's always fire he almost does throw frank into the fire actually i think he might at one point i was like oh fire stunt yeah, he almost does. But that was it. You know, it's like we're in a very small, confined spot. It's very hard to have like a grand finale. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like the visual of Dracula in that like puddle with the hand dissolving into the, the skeleton hand. It is cool, but the sequence as a whole, you're right. It is kind of anticlimactic. Dracula kind of goes out like a chump here. Like he's not straight up killed. He just, it's the sun. You're dealing with Dracula like you, he deserves better. He deserves a better death. <laughs> he should be smarter overall, I think. That too. Like, he should be the last to die. I don't know. Like, it's just weird that it's his movie and he's gone. And it, like, it just didn't really feel like he was ever really here that much. He feels like a pawn in Catherine's game more than anything. You know, I think we sort of touched on that before. Yeah, and I just don't think Dracula would, would fall for that. You know, he just, he's, he's more cunning. Like, he would... He would be able to outplay anybody like that. I feel is like one of his superpowers is like you just cannot get one over on Dracula. Like he sees so many moves ahead. Like he would definitely know what she was up to. But And we should specify that like Lon Chaney had nothing to do with that part of it. You know, like he's playing the character as written. But like, I, I just don't understand why this Dracula was such a, a rube. He really did turn into Larry Talbot at the end there. Like... Please, put the fire out. Put it out. Oh, oh. And so with Dracula dead, Frank recovers and heads back to Dark Oaks, just as Dr. Brewster and the sheriff and everybody else descend upon that spot. They see um, Alucard's skeleton hand and deduce that everything was correct about him being a, a vampire. And now it's, it's Frank's moment of truth. He can allow Catherine to live and be one of the undead for an eternity and he can be with her or he can cremate her so yeah he has to make the choice and um in a rare downer ending for one of these movies he chooses to let her go the movie ends with her fiery tomb i mean i think this is the right ending but i did not think they were gonna go there like, I thought for sure she was going to wake up cured because Dracula was dead and she was wrong about gaining yep. immortality. You know, I thought like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I thought she'd wake up and be like, it didn't work. Oh, no. Well, let's just spend the time we have left together and hopefully it'll be like an eternity. I was blown away by this ending. I don't know how else to say I, Like, I really don't think it shot well, which sucks. But the point and everything is like amazing. Like, it's one of the big downer endings. Uh, it makes perfect sense. I never would have imagined that the movie would have gone there, but yeah, uh, Frank lights her up, cremates her in her own bed. Everybody comes in, he comes out in tears and the movie ends. I was in shock. I was gonna say, I, I, I do like that final image, the push on Frank, who's just like completely emotionally spent at that point. Yep, yeah, the guy's done right like he, he's just gonna go walk into a padded room and close the door behind him <laughs> in this universe i feel like that's your only recourse in, in a, after an event like this you're not getting your old life back so yeah that's the end of son of dracula is there anything else you would like to mention final thoughts talking through it yeah helps uh watching it was a scream like i was just all over the place i was so confused at times like i was i was up i was down i was loving certain moments like you heard me tonight like there are certain moments in this movie i absolutely 
love, but then there's moments where I'm just like so confused and I don't like, and it's just like, there's good stuff in the bones of this story and the script, and this is a really cool idea to do a Son of Dracula thing, but I just feel like they missed the mark. I mean, I don't really exactly know even what they're shooting for. If they're trying to transition more into like the children's film genre type of stuff i guess this was a good first step because it feels like highly censored in a lot of ways even though there's like adult ideas and stuff playing out graphically as far as horror goes there's not a whole lot of violence there's not a whole lot of death there's not a whole lot of that kind of stuff we've seen way bigger body counts we've seen way worse stuff going on so i don't know i was just very surprised i was very surprised by it um it's rubbing off on me a little better after talking about it. I, I would revisit it. I think it's worth watching. I think it's very unusual, and I never would have been able to like predict where this movie went like in a million years. So for that, I, I give it a lot of credit. And yeah, I just never would have imagined that this was going to be Son of Dracula. You're reading my mind a little bit. I was going to say that the bones of this story are good. I really do think that they had something good here, and I think that it just sort of fell apart, maybe on the script level. You know, maybe that's that's who we blame for this. I think it's it's too wordy a lot of the times. I mean, we just that, that prison sequence, you know, just Catherine coming back and forth and back and forth. The pacing, it's just, I just don't love it. Herky-jerky, and I don't love how much they rely on the words to convey all the information that we need to know. So yeah, maybe we put this one on Eric Taylor, and then, you know, Lon Chaney just not really being the right fit for Dracula. I don't hate this one at all. I, I, I do really enjoy this one for a lot of the things that it does well, really. It's just not one of those movies that I revisit very often. Yeah. Stalin Dracula looks cool, you know, with the mustache and everything. And like that, reading into it, like that's kind of fun. And there's stuff to think about here, for sure. I just wish that there was all that other stuff too that we love about the monster movies i just feel like dracula deserved better maybe in the end and and that's all like like all the other stuff is cool but maybe you could have made a different horror movie with with all of that in a different way you know some kind of witchcraft thing keep dracula out of this but i, I look forward to seeing where he pops up again next you know i've got a i got the sneaking suspicion we haven't seen the last of the old count <laughs> no, we have a couple appearances of Dracula coming up, which I'm very much looking forward to. But as far as I can remember, this is the one and only time Lon Chaney plays Dracula. So we will be getting a, a new Dracula uh, next time we see him. With that, I think that's a good place to wrap up. It's time for us to return to our coffins before the sun comes up. But don't worry, we'll be back on Friday, May 27th for more Invisible Adventures as we discuss 1944's The Invisible Man's Revenge. Oh, man. Also starring John Hall, although not playing the same character from Invisible Agent. Why would he? Yeah, no, he's playing an entirely different character. All right. Looking forward to it. So in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. And you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Colon. Mike, where can listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester. And you can find all the other shows I am on at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us you can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on itunes that 
helps other people discover the show. And it helps us know what you guys like or don't like about the show. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody.